Alrighty, we're in Revelation chapter 15 today. So I'll just pray and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the hope that we receive as we read the book of Revelation. Lord, we see people who appear to be down and out, but in actual fact they're conquering. And the people who appear to be winning are actually losing. Lord, this is an upside-down world where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And help us to understand that and not to get upset when we perceive wrongly that people are getting a better deal than we are because, Lord, we're in your hands and, Lord, you do what's best for us. So help us to trust what you do in and through our lives and around us, in our families, in our friends, and to know that that is what's best for us and not to be looking for other things to satisfy us and to fulfill us, but, Lord, just to trust in you and to know that as we go through difficult times, it's for our good because it transforms us into your image. It's your process of change. Help us just to trust you and to grow as quick as we can so we don't have to go through so many trials. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled this The Martyred Jewish Believers in Heaven. So Revelation 15. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested or revealed. So, Revelation chapter 15 and 16 go together. Okay, this is like an interlude, an introduction to the seven bold judgments. So, just a bit of revision. What are the first set of judgments that God sent onto the earth? The seal judgments, yep, the seven seal judgments. And so, there was the first seal judgment, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. But when the seventh seal judgment was revealed, it wasn't actually a judgment, it was the introduction to the seven trumpet judgments. That's good. Okay, we've been through the, the first six trumpet judgments and when the seventh trumpet blew, what was revealed? The seven bowl judgments, yeah. So basically there's three sets of seven judgments and we can say that they're telescopic. They, they, they kind of go out from each other. So these... Judgments in Revelation 16 are the most horrific, catastrophic, destructive, lethal, and painful judgments that will ever hit this planet. And it's nasty. And so what God does in chapter 15 is show us why he's doing it. He's showing us why he's judging the world so severely. Okay, He's giving us the divine 
viewpoint. It explains why. Through the book of Revelation, we see these interludes or these pauses, and uh, Hal Lindsey calls them an interlude of grace. And basically there's an interlude or a pause after the seal judgments and there's an interlude or pause after the trumpet judgments. And it gives people the opportunity to stand back and just reflect on what God is doing and gives them an opportunity to repent. We'll come back to that in a sec. So last week we learned about the two harvests at the end of Revelation 14. One is a harvest by Jesus of the enemies of God, the armies of the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon, and the other is the harvest of believers. Now, you might get a little bit confused here and say, well, isn't that the end? Well, no. There's vignettes throughout the book of Revelation. The chapters that carry the story forward chronologically are the chapters that talk about the judgments, like first the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and coming up the bold judgments and so that's what happens in a chronological fashion but the vignettes are stories with meaning they show the most important personalities organizations and events that will shake the world during the period of the seven-year tribulation so to know when they happen you have to look at the context for example the 144 thousand standing on Mount Zion can't happen until the very end after the second coming because Jesus doesn't come back until the end of the seven year tribulation. Okay? He's not going to be standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 before the second coming. So these vignettes, these story chapters, if you want to call them that, actually just give us more details about what happens at different parts of the tribulation. So to be clear, the harvest described at the end of chapter 14 haven't happened yet. They're not chronological. They're just telling us what will happen. Now, I spoke before, or just mentioned before, about this interlude of grace. And I want to read a scripture that describes God's heart's desire for people to be saved, to have a chance to repent. So it's 2 Peter 3.9, and it says, The Lord does not delay and is not tardy or slow about what he promises, according to some people's conception of slowness. But he is long-suffering, extraordinarily patient towards you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should turn to repentance. And that's out of the Amplified Bible. And it's got in brackets there, extraordinarily patient he is long-suffering, extraordinarily patient toward us. He gives us every opportunity. And we've read in previous weeks that you know he rises up early. He sends his prophets day after day after day. So God is rich in mercy. And he gives these interludes of grace, these pauses after each set of judgments. And the judgments get greater and greater and more intense as they go on. So basically it's not... Knock, knock. Are you listening? No, I'm not listening. I can't really hear that. Okay, I'm going to knock louder. Now, now it's a thump from the door. And this last one is like knocking the door down. <laughs> I'm going to get your attention, all right? So the judgments are getting greater and greater. So let's go to verse 1 and 
This is the third sign. So Revelation 15 verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So as we said before, Revelation 14 seemed to be the end of it all, ending with the fury of the battle of Armageddon. But now John's going to go back and will describe God's judgment in more detail. And now this is like a Israeli Hebrew thing of the way they communicate ideas and facts and that. The idea of stating and restating in more detail is common in prophecy and with Hebrew literature in general. So if you think back to Genesis, you've got the very short section outlining what God did on each of the days of creation. That's from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 7. Then in chapters 2 verse 8 to 25, it expands, it repeats and expands. So it's not too contradictory accounts, it's two complementary accounts. They both work together. They're both describing the same events, but one has a different focus, a different emphasis, and more details. It's about more on the creation of man. And as I talked about before, another, in the Greek it can be another of a different kind, or another of the same kind, and in the Greek it's alos. This is another sign of the same kind. So it's the third one, and we'll go through what the other two were in a little while. And seven angels having the seven last plagues. Which plagues are these? The bold judgments, yeah. This is the last sign. And we'll read about them in chapter 16. It also says in verse 1, For in them the wrath of God is complete. And last week we learned about the word wrath. There's two words Greek words for wrath. One is thymos, the volatile, passionate anger, and the other one is orge, anger from a settled disposition. And this is a place where God's anger flashes hot. He's, it's revealed, it's expended. Okay. Now, complete. This is an interesting word. Can you guess where this might come from? Well, the root word is teleste. It's the same word basically used by Jesus when he cried out from the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. So it's a single word, teleste, and it just means paid in full. And if you were living in those days and you owed some money to a shop, you'd have a parchment and they'd have your bill. And when you'd paid your bill, they would write teleste, paid in full. Your debt was paid. The goods belong to you. So it basically means the debt was completely paid. So when Jesus cried out, Tertelestai, he was declaring that the sins or sin debt of man had been paid in full. Penalty of every sin that would ever be committed had been paid in full. Now this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's kind of interesting. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the things he said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And then he says, Teltelestai, it is finished, means paid in full. And then his next prayer was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now does that sound different to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. 
Because once the debt was paid, Jesus was back in communion with the Father. Pretty cool, eh? So on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing separation from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. But once that debt was paid, he said, It is finished. God had accepted payment for that, for our sins. Then he was no longer separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And an interesting thing here, why did he say, my God, my God? Well, my God the Father and my God the Holy Spirit. And my God the Son was hanging on the cross. And so Jesus was separated from both the Father and the Holy Spirit. So how does this word complete or finish fit into the context of the last seven plagues? Well, basically it says that these last seven plagues, or in these last seven plagues, the wrath of God is complete. Now how Lindsay suggested it could be translated this way. Because in this, the wrath of God against a Christ-rejecting world is paid in full. It's completely expended. Now we've talked about that cup of wrath. <laughs> it's completely emptied out. They've received the full payment for their sins. Not on an individual basis, but on an earth world basis. And so you can expect it to be pretty horrific. All right, now I'm just going to go through the first two signs. And you find the first one in Revelation 12.1. Just because you want to know what these three signs are. They're pretty important. So the first sign in Revelation 12.1 says... Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And as we know, it's Israel. Why? Well, Joseph had a dream, and his father Jacob interpreted the dream for us. Jacob was the sun, his mother the moon, and the twelve stars, the twelve tribes of Israel. And why is this such a great sign? It says it's a great sign. Well, it signifies that all through history, God had created the nation of Israel, to be a great or miraculous sign of God's existence through them to make known the way of salvation to the Gentiles. And then God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, because in you I will bless all the nations. So did you ever wonder why God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? Well, God created Israel and he stated publicly in the scriptures that he was going to use them, Israel, to reach out to the rest of the world and bless the world through them, especially through the Saviour who would come from them. Therefore they would become a target of Satan and therefore they would need protection. And that's why he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It's basically a promise of protection. And guess what? God is still doing that today. The covenant of physical protection by God, of God's covenant people, is still being kept by God to this day. Even though Israel is still in unbelief, God is still keeping his promises to them. If you look at the nation of Israel today, it doesn't make sense that they are still in existence. They should have been destroyed by those wars. The military planners don't bother studying Israeli wars because it's just impossible that Israel could have won those wars. It's God. God still keeps his covenant. So the first sign, the first great sign is the nation of Israel. 
and God using them to bless the world. And the second sign, a sign meaning has meaning, appeared in heaven, and this is Revelation 12.3. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. So as we've already learnt, this represents the final form of Gentile world power where you have the ten nations or rulers, ten kings, and making up the revived Roman Empire. And it's on the dragon, so it's going to be brought about by Satan, and we know that Satan is a dragon. And it's going to be one of the greatest curses that mankind will ever experience. And we look around and we see the world submitting to these dictators. It's going to be, in the end, that unbelieving mankind will surrender their freedoms and willingly come under the control of the world's greatest psychopath. <laughs> the world's most evil, cruel, deceptive, smooth-talking, flattering and manipulating leader ever, as we know him today as the Antichrist. Okay. So that's the second sign. And the third sign, what was it? The seven angels with the seven judgments. So the third sign is God judging this evil kingdom. This evil world empire that is going to be there in the last seven years. Okay, moving on to verse 2 in Revelation 15. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So we've been through the image and the mark of the beast and all that. So what about this sea of glass? Have we seen this sea of glass before in the book of Revelation? Well, Back in chapter 4, and I'll put it up for you, it's Revelation 4 verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. So the difference between the seas of glass, the one in Revelation 4 and the one in Revelation 15, they're both before the throne, but the one in chapter 4 is not mixed with fire. And in chapter 15 it's mixed with fire. Also, the martyrs, who come out of this tribulation are standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire. A couple of differences there. So why mixed with fire? Well, here's a quote by Valvord. The sea is designed to reflect the glory of God. In chapter 4, its description, like unto crystal, speaks of the holiness of God. Here the sea mingled with fire speaks of divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness. And we know that fire in the Bible often represents judgment. Now, what does the sea of glass represent? Well, I believe it's in contrast to the raging sea, the sea in tumult down here on earth, meaning the nations. Okay, The nations are never resting. The Bible says the nations, I won't read the scriptures now, but the Bible says the nations are like the sea. You never rest. Its waves are always rolling, bringing up the dirt and the mire. In contrast, this sea in heaven is a sea that's so peaceful and smooth that it's like glass. And so it shows the conditions that we will experience when we go to heaven. It's perfect peace. Also in verse 2 it says that they have the victory over the beast. So even though the Antichrist looks like he's having victory, guess who's really victorious? It's the 
believers. They are not losers. They are suffering, but they are not the losers. So if they're not losers, tell me how are they winning? The early church consistently described the day of martyrdom as a day of victory. Isn't that cool? Even when the Romans were killing the Christians, they would describe that day when they died as a day of victory. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we appear to lose, but we are actually winning, we are actually gaining and as we mentioned before during worship, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Everything in God's kingdom is opposite to the world. So what are we winning? Well, there's a crown for those who are faithful. And you know that any kind of race that you compete in, it takes endurance, it takes effort, and it takes work. So to win in Christ's kingdom, we have to endure, we have to persevere. But then we receive the crown. We are the winners. And having harps of God. The only people seen with harps before were the 24 elders. Uh, Revelation 5.8, and that represents, I believe, the church. And these tribulation martyrs are given the blessing of worshipping God with music in heaven. So as I said before, we'll all learn how to play these heavenly harps. So those who aren't musical, it's okay. You will be soon. <laughs> And now we go on to verses 3 and 4. And this is going to tell us exactly who these tribulation martyrs are, this different group of people. It says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested or revealed. So they sing the song of Moses. Now there's only one song, okay, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's, it's like two titles referring to a single song. And someone has said, David Guzik said, Here is a perfect union between law and love, between old covenant and the new covenant. So in other words, you can think of this as a song sung by Messianic Jews. Jews who come to faith in the Saviour. Now, it's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. If you read the Song of Moses back in Exodus, there's a lot of similarities. So, God's works, great and marvellous are your works. God's ways, just and true are your ways. God's worthiness, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, and God's worship. All nations shall come and worship before you. So what is the song praising? It's God's works, God's ways, God's worthiness, and God's worship. So it's a good song, and it's a good model for us to sing and design songs on too, I believe. So these people went through untold horrors during the tribulation, but now they are celebrating with a joy that we can't even imagine. They are playing music, they are just over the moon, right? Now, they have no regrets, no PTSD, no residual fears or discouragement or even disturbing memories. Everything they want is right in front of them, and that is Jesus. Isn't that what we desire the most? Jesus is what fulfills us 
to be in the physical presence of Jesus is what we should be desiring. It's what our true desire is. Our true need is to be in that physical presence, in that most intimate relationship with Jesus. So these people, these Jewish tribulation martyrs, they are the true winners. Everything they did, everything they gave up, everything they suffered is being repaid a million times over, basically. You can't comprehend how much more you're going to get back when you give to God. And as they enter eternity in the presence of God, they are singing with all of their might this new song that God is teaching them. Remember, we all have our own song that we can sing. Our own personal experiences, our own personal relation with God. We learn to trust Him in our own way. So, application for us here. God doesn't make us or force us to give things up for Him. Okay? God isn't ripping things off for us so that we can be miserable. Say, oh, you're having fun doing that? I don't want you to have fun. I'm going to take it away from you. (laughs) No, He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us the opportunity to give things up, even good things, for his sake, so that we can be greatly rewarded. We'll be blessed both in this life and in the next. So Mark 10, 29-30 gives us an idea about this. He says, Yes, Jesus replied, And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news, will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. <laughs> Jim Elliot, what did he say? The missionary, he went to Ecuador. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain when he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And as those torchlighter videos, many of those missionaries gave up a whole lot to be where God wanted them to be. But they never had any regrets. So, again, it's not that God wants us to become miserable, to give things up. It's not like he's punishing us. Rather, that we would become so occupied with him that our concerns and our focus shift from trying to fit into all the demands of this world system to doing the things that bring honor and glory to God and eternal reward to us. And this is how we enter into the joy of the Lord, the joy of abiding with God, of walking in agreement with him. There is some satisfaction in doing the things of the world, in getting fulfillment in this world. Okay, It's true but it's temporary and it's very limited. This is what Jesus wants for us. He says in John 15, 9-11, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So, why does he just told them, I have told you these things? What things? Well, Jesus tells the disciples, I remain in the Father's love. By, how? 
obeying him, it says there. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. If we remain in his love, then our joy will be full and we remain in his love by being obedient. So God wants us to have this abundant life, to be filled with his joy, this overflowing joy. But if we're doing our own thing, that will never happen. So you can be a Christian and never experience the joy of the Lord. It's conditional. Okay, This is something that is conditional. The joy of the Lord depends on your obedience. So you can find your temporary satisfaction in the things of this world, in the things that we all want, or you can find your eternal satisfaction right here, right now on this earth, as we abide in God and follow Him. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Look at all the personal pronouns we have. Your, your, you, your, you, you, and your. <laughs> There's not one me or my or I in all these verses. So what's the focus of these martyrs? It's God, isn't it? Yeah. So as they're worshipping the Lord, they're not even focusing or remembering their own costly or glorious victory. Why? Well, as far as not remembering their own sufferings and stuff, is because God enabled them and God strengthened them to do what they did. Without his strength, they wouldn't have got through. Without his strength, without his power, they wouldn't have achieved anything. And they were sustained by God's hand, by God's power, as they went through those trials. And these people, these, I'm going to call them Messianic Jewish Tribulation Martyrs, they have and demonstrate the true heart of worship, understanding that worship is all about God and not about us. So I just want to talk about the sacrifice of praise. Many today make the focus of worship themselves. They want to have this nice emotional experience and come out feeling good. All right. But the Bible describes our praise as the sacrifice of praise. So that means it's going to cost you something. To sacrifice means it's going to cost you. It's not something you gain. It's something you give. All right. It's something we do to give to God, to bless God, not something we do to feel blessed. It's not about me. It's about Him. As John the Baptist said, I must become less, He must become greater. I must decrease, He must increase. So there's nothing wrong with feeling good as we praise and worship God. But we shouldn't be doing it for the feelings. And sometimes he won't be feeling those feelings. So if we're not worshipping God so we can feel good, why do we worship him? It's because he is worthy to be worshipped. That's why we worship him. He's worthy. God wants us to worship him and give him the honour that he deserves, no matter how we feel. We worship him because he is worthy to be worshipped and for no other reason. So anyone no matter how you're feeling, can make the decision, like we, it says in Psalm 13, I will choose to sing to God. I will sing praises to the Lord. It doesn't matter how you feel. It's a sacrifice that's going to cost you. No matter how hard it might be, we can still choose to do that. Now what happens when we do? What happens when we do make the sacrifice of praise or give the sacrifice of praise? What happens to our focus? It comes off ourselves and goes on to Christ. Okay? We remind ourselves of what is true and we sort out which feelings are wrong 
or from the wrong source and which feelings are from the Lord and what is true and what is false. Walking by sight is walking by emotions, feelings and that. Walking by faith is walking by what is true. Okay. And I've just said that God is worthy of our worship even if we don't feel like he is. So who are these martyrs? Well, the title of the song gives us a big hint. They are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So the Jewish. Now what is the song of Moses? I've got a quote from John Corson here. It says, The song of Moses, recorded in Exodus 15, is the first song in the Bible. With their backs to the Red Sea, three million Jews looked up to see Pharaoh's army barreling down on them. Moses, you've led us into a trap, they cried because not one of them knew that God was about to do something totally unexpected, unpredictable, unprecedented. So it was not until after God intervened, after the Red Sea parted, after the children of Israel crossed safely to the other side, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed, that they sang, The Lord has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. So the song of Moses is a song of victory. It's a song of victory. Back then in the day, it was a victory over the Egypt, over the world system that was trying to destroy them. Guess what? As they're seeing in the book of Revelation, it's a song of victory over the world system that was trying to destroy them. <laughs> okay? So that's why they're seeing the song of Moses. Now, another evidence that these tribulation martyrs are Jewish is that we have already seen the Gentile martyrs from all tribes, tongues, nations, etc. back in Revelation chapter 7. Now, I just want to talk about why this segregation of Jews and Gentiles is so important. Well, it's a very strong proof that the church cannot be on the earth during the tribulation, that the rapture happens before the tribulation starts. So, I'll try and explain this. If the church was still on earth during the tribulation, you would not be able to segregate or separate believing Jews from believing Gentiles. Why? Well, it says all through the New Testament that we are one in Christ. We are one body in Christ. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And here's one of those scriptures. It's Galatians 3, 27-29. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to God, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That's a promise of the Messiah, right? So, in the church age, there's only two groups of people, there's saved and there's unsaved. Any saved person, Jew or Gentile, will go up in the rapture. Any unsaved person, Jew or Gentile, will enter the tribulation. But in the tribulation, temple worship will be restored. They'll be offering sacrifices again. It's going to be the time when God uses Israel to reach out to the world, to be his light to the world, to preach the gospel to the world. It's the last seven years allocated to Israel. It's the last week, the last week of years allocated to Israel. 
And God will use the nation of Israel to do what they haven't done very well in the past, and that is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And in that last seven years, they will have spectacular success, as we've seen. A multitude that no one can count will come to Christ through their witness. And we read that in Revelation chapter 7. Now, does it mean that God has forgotten about his people now? His children? No. Okay. God is still keeping his covenant promises. He's brought them back into the land in our lifetimes. They're in the land. God is protecting them. God is making the land green. He's blessing them when they don't deserve it. It's all happening. But there's going to come a time when he will switch from using the church to using Israel to be his ambassadors of the gospel. Now in verse 5, Revelation 15 verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Well, that's a big word, isn't it? A big title. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So it's in heaven. This is a tabernacle that's in heaven. But what I want to focus on now is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. What is its testimony? Hmm, interesting. Why is it called the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony? What is it testifying of? So here it represents what the purpose of the tabernacle is. Like, why is it being opened now? Why is it being mentioned right now in the book of Revelation? We'll get on to that. So remember first that in the Old Testament, God gave the instructions to Moses to build an exact replica of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses that talk about that. Hebrews 8.5 Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses was up on the mountain. God revealed to him the exact pattern, the exact dimensions and all that of the tabernacle. And then he went down and he built it with the help of the nation, of course. And Numbers 150, But you shall appoint Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. Again, this testimony, what is it? All right. So God says the tabernacle is built to testify. It's built to give testimony. But of what? So here in Revelation 15, the tabernacle is revealed to the believers, especially the Israelites. But how is it a testimony? Firstly, this is not directly related, but it seems that God preferred the tabernacle over the temple because the tabernacle emphasized that this world is a temporary place, a place we're just passing through. You could pick it up and carry it with you wherever you went, so it wasn't a permanent structure. So I'm going to put a picture of the tabernacle up. Notice it's got a cloth fence around it. Those black dots are wooden poles, which rest on bases of silver or sockets of silver. And so the, the cloth is held up by these wooden poles. There's only one entrance. As you walk in, you see the bronze altar, followed by the bronze laver. And then you go into the holy place, and inside the holy place you've got the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. And if you keep going, you go into the holy of holies, and you'll find the Ark of the Covenant with the Shekinah glory there, God's physical presence. 
So, how is the tabernacle a testimony? What does it testify? Well, if you look around at the tabernacle, it was surrounded by a cloth fence all around, and each wooden pole made out of acacia wood was mounted on a silver socket. So, silver in the Bible represents what? It starts with R. Redemption, yeah. So this is a type or picture that the only way into the tabernacle was through the redemptive work of the cross, the payment for our freedom represented by the silver. And then there was only one way into the tabernacle, which shows that there is only one way to God through Jesus. Now I'm going to go through these more at the end as an application. Also directly in front of the front gate was a bronze altar and a bronze laver, or C, that contained water. So the brass is always associated with a judgment of sin. So you would look at that and see that the only way to get into the tabernacle to experience fellowship with God was through the sacrifice of an innocent substitute for my sins. And that's part of his testimony. So this is what the tabernacle is testifying of, right? It's all about our access to God. Also, when you looked at the tabernacle from the outside, it was ugly. It was made of badger skins. This is the actual tent itself, right? It's like black. But on the inside, it was beautiful. It was this linen cloth with angels and palm trees and that woven onto it. And this is a picture of the Messiah, the Savior who would come to be the one true sacrifice, who would not just cover sin like the other animal sacrifices, but would rather take away the sins of the world. But when they saw him, there was nothing external about him that drew people to him. You'd have to get to know him to find out who he was. And Isaiah 53 verse 2 talks about this. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So it's only once they got to know Jesus that they recognized his true beauty. And when they went into the first part, there was only one source of light, and that's the menorah with its seven branches. What does that represent? In the New Testament, Jesus is the light of the world. Then there's the altar of incense just behind the curtain that led into the Holy of Holies. It shows that we come into God's presence with prayer and praise and it also shows the ministry of the high priest is to pray for us. It's a place of intercessory prayer. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would place his hands on the head of the animal and confess the sins of the nation. He would then kill the animal and take some of the blood into the Holy of Holies, the second section of the tabernacle the small section where the Ark of the Covenant is. And again, only the high priest can go in and only once a year. But once he went into the Holy of Holies, there's no natural light source. But there was the Shekinah glory of God, and this represented the glory and presence of God. Now, in there you had this box called the Ark of the Covenant, and in the box was two tablets, Ten Commandments, and on top of the box was the cherubim, that lid was called the mercy seat. And that separated the presence of God from the law, the Ten Commandments. And the high priest would then sprinkle some of the blood from the sacrifice onto the mercy seat, making atonement for all the sins of the nation for a period of one year. And this was a picture. This was testifying of what Jesus would do later on. Hebrews makes it clear that the priests should have realized that those sacrifices could never make anyone perfect. 
and that a better sacrifice was needed. Well, guess who the better sacrifice is? It's Jesus. This is a testimony of the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle of testimony. Jesus is the better and perfect sacrifice. Jesus took his own blood, went into the real tabernacle in heaven, sprinkled some of his own blood on the real mercy seat, not the copy on earth, and in doing so atoned for all the sins of mankind forever, and not just for one year, and not just for Israel. So Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice who atones or pays for the sins of all mankind forever. So, I just wanted to show you that this is why I believe the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of testimony. And what a great testimony it has. It points us to Jesus. Now, the question is, why is it focused on at this time? Why is now the focus of everyone in heaven on the tabernacle in heaven? And why is it being opened up? I believe it's to remind them that the reason these horrific and terrible judgments are about to be poured out into the world is because they did not receive his testimony. Instead, they rejected it. Does that make sense? They didn't receive what Jesus died for and gave freely so that they could receive a pardon for their sins. And a couple of verses here. 1 John 2.2 2 and Romans 3.23-25 So first of all, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He himself is a sacrifice, propitiation, payment, or mercy seat. That's the same word in the Old Testament for mercy seat. That atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of all the world. And then there's Romans 3, 23-25. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, makes us right in his sight. That's justified. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God the Father presented Jesus, God the Son, as a sacrifice, again meaning propitiation, payment or mercy seat, for sin. God became the payment. That's what propitiation means. God is the payment. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So the mercy seat represents Jesus as our payment for sins. It's where his blood would be applied or sprinkled and our sin debt paid, averting or turning away God's wrath from us. Okay? Averting or turning away God's wrath. It's an important part of propitiation, understanding propitiation. And again, why is it here? Because God's wrath is about to be poured out. It's not being diverted. It's not being turned away. It's going to be poured out. Why? Because they didn't receive his testimony. So, Revelation 15, 6-8, And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. So the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So, the seven last plagues are represented by the seven bowls for God's wrath, which we poured out onto the earth one at a time. And each one of the seven angels is responsible for one plague, and we'll go through those next week. The last plague, the seventh bowl, signifies, or that's when Jesus comes back. 
Okay, right? It's the end of the tribulation. We've come to the end. There's still a couple more vignettes to show us more things that will happen, but chronologically, we've reached the end. So, I want to go back over the testimony of the tabernacle. What did it testify? Sometimes you do things twice, you've got more chance of remembering it. <laughs> so, what did the tabernacle, the testimony of the tabernacle, what did it testify? Well, if you look at the tabernacle, it was surrounded by a cloth fence all around, a white linen cloth. So each wooden pole was made out of acacia wood and mounted on a silver socket. So why silver? Redemption, yeah. Silver is a type of picture that the only way into the tabernacle was through the redemptive work of the cross, the payment for our freedom. Silver is always associated with the price paid for our salvation, the sacrifice required to ransom us and buy our freedom. Now, I want to go into explaining why we get this idea. So, Exodus 38 tells us there's a census tax. Now, a census is where you count the number of people, right? When they did a census, they had to pay half a shekel of silver. Every person over 20 years old had to pay half a shekel of silver when they were counted. And that was to avert the plague like buying their redemption so they could be spared from this plague. So David, if you remember, he counted the people and he didn't collect the tax. There was no redemption and so about 30,000 people were killed. But then David made a sacrifice and the plague was stopped. So Exodus 38, verses 25 to 27 and the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above, for 603,550 men. And verse 27 is what I want to draw your attention to. It says, And from the 100 talents of silver, this redemption money, were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. 100 sockets from the 100 talents. One talent for each socket. So these people paid this money to redeem themselves from the plague and then that money was used to make the bases for the, the poles that held up the curtain. So silver, redemption. And there's another interesting fact here about silver. Numbers tells us that the firstborn of all people, so your firstborn, your first child, had to be redeemed by, guess what? Silver. But the firstborn of all the clean animals, your goats, your sheep, and your cattle, they could not be redeemed. They had to be killed on the altar. And that's a picture of man being redeemed and a substitute dying in their place. And that's in Numbers 18, 15 to 17. I'm not reading all of it, just the important bits but you must always redeem your firstborn sons. Redeem them when they are one month old. The redemption price is five pieces of silver. However, you may not redeem the firstborn of cattle, sheep or goats. They are holy and have been set apart for the Lord. Sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn the fat as a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So again, notice that the people were redeemed with silver, but the clean animals used as sacrifices could not be redeemed because they were a sacrifice to God a picture of the substitutionary atonement. 
Now, secondly, why was there only one way into the tabernacle? Only one way to God, yep. And a couple of verses there, 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And John 10, 9. I am the door, the door. Definite article, the only door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, go in and out and find pasture. And we could also go to that verse in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, directly in front of the front gate was the bronze altar and a bronze laver, or C. So, what did the brass altar signify? Judgment, yep. All right, and what's being judged on there? Sin. It's a judgment of sin. So again, you'd look at that and see that the only way to get into the tabernacle to experience fellowship with God himself was through the sacrifice of an innocent substitute for my sins. And the fourth thing there I want to point your attention to is when you look at the tabernacle from the outside, it was ugly, made of badger skins, but on the inside, it was a beautiful experience with this beautiful linen with all those designs woven in gold, okay, gold thread. So why was the Tabernacle of Testimony designed like this? To look ordinary? Why? Because Jesus, the coming Saviour, would on the outside look very ordinary, but on the inside he would be Jesus. He would be deity, okay? He would be God in man. The inside of the tabernacle was a picture of heaven with the angels and the palm trees and stuff like that. And the outside is a picture of earth, if you can put, look at it that way. And so you had Jesus, God himself, inside a man's body. And we read that verse in Isaiah before. Um, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And when they went to the first part, there was only one source of light, the menorah. That's a picture of Jesus being the light of the world. There was an altar of incense just before the curtain that led into the Holy of Holies. What does a high priest do for us? He intercedes on our behalf. And how do we come to God? Through prayer and praise. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would place his hands on the head of the animal and confess the sins of the nation. It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He would then kill the animal and take some of the blood into the Holy of Holies, the second section of the tabernacle. Again, only the high priest can go in once a year. So what's this a picture of? This Yom Kippur? This once a year sacrifice? Jesus being the better and perfect sacrifice. Jesus took his own blood into the real tabernacle in heaven and sprinkled it on the real mercy seat not the copy here on earth. And when he did that, he atoned for the sins of all mankind forever. Not just a year and not just for the nation of Israel. And what happens to the person who rejects this sacrifice on their behalf? Judgment. As we are reading today, the tabernacle of testimony, it testifies that Jesus did everything required or everything that possibly could be done for these people for them to be saved but they rejected his testimony 
And this is what John 16, 8 and 9 says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of only one sin. That's sin singular, okay? Only one of sin because they do not believe in me. Why can't you be forgiven of that sin? It's because that is your way of salvation. Accepting that God died in your place is the way to be saved. If you reject that, then you can't be saved. So we see that those who dwell on the earth, they represent or signify those who are at home on the earth. We're going more to um, this phrase, who dwell on the earth, next week. But these are the people who are at home on the earth, who find their comfort in the things of the world. They reject Jesus because they are unwilling to give up the things of the world. They loved sin more than their eternal soul and so must pay the price forever. And this is the same choice that we all have today. And this is John three eighteen and 19. It says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He who believes is not condemned. Why? Because he has chosen to believe in the name of the Son of God. He who is condemned is condemned. Why? Because they have chosen not to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's very simple. So Lord, I pray that we can be children of light, not of darkness. And Lord, this testimony that you have given us, this tabernacle of testimony, Lord, it testifies so much, and there's so much more we could have gone into today. Like why the white curtain and all that kind of thing. But Lord, we know enough. We know that it speaks of your atoning sacrifice. It speaks of your gift of forgiveness. It speaks of you dying in our place. You set the penalty. You paid the penalty. And if we accept it, we can go free. We can be justified. And your wrath will not fall on us. It will be averted. It will be turned away. Because Jesus absorbed every bit of it. So thank you, Father. Lord, we see that there's always going to be a choice. These Messianic Jews in the tribulation coming to know you and having victory and then the rest choosing not to, the rest of the world, and going and facing and experiencing judgment. So help us, Father, to take this message to our friends and our family and to be praying for them most of all. Lord, just help us to be on our knees in prayer. That's the most effective weapon that we have. We can't change people's hearts by the words we speak, but we can change people's hearts by the prayers we pray. So we just pray that you help us to remember these things in Jesus' name. Amen.